Okay. Um, our next question involves transitioning from PMR, physical matter reality, to NPMR, non-physical matter reality. Um, could you elaborate on the transition process from PMR to NPMR that happens immediately after death? What is the common scenario for an average person in this PMR? What integration, if any, is done between the PMR, self-personality, and the NPMR, IUOC, or Individuated Unit of Consciousness? Well, that was about five or six questions there. I don't know if I would remember all of them, but uh, I'll, I'll get out. I'll do some of it, and if I miss parts, you can uh, uh, ping me again. Okay. Um, you'll, find, you'll find some of this in the uh, YouTube. I've discussed this several, several uh, places and times, but I will go over it again here. Um, the process of... Yeah, well, there's several processes of discovering non-physical reality. It doesn't have to be death. You know, it, it can be you know an out-of-body or a lucid dream, like we were just talking about. That also sets you, uh, you know, uh, as an explorer in a in a in a non-physical frame. And even dreaming is makes you a uh, an actor, at least, even if your intellect's not involved. It makes you a, an actor at the being level in a non-physical frame. So there's Getting in non-physical frames is kind of a casual thing we, we do all the time, um, even if it's just in our, in our dreams that we're aware of. But definitely we get in a non-physical frame after we die out of this physical frame, because that's then the end of that particular life in this, in this physical uh, matter of virtual reality. And the way that works, and I'm, I'm giving a very kind of stylized view of it, because for most people, it's not just a, a, a black and white. It's not like I'm here in physical reality and the next second I've died and I'm in a non-physical reality. It's usually not like that. It's not like you've uh, a sudden occurrence. As you are dying and in the dying process, you often begin that transition before you are, you are officially pronounced dead here. Um, the process begins earlier and even if you're just really, really old, and let's say you're 95 or 98, or like my mom, got to 99 and a half, you know, you've been making that transition for a few years, you know, where you have, your mind's been kind of going out and interacting in that, in that realm. You're kind of loosening, loosening your, your grasp and your, and your connection with physical reality, and those things are going on. So it's, it's often not just a now you're here and now you're not kind of a, an arrangement. People do gradually make transitions. But I'm not going to go into all of that because that's very individual. However an individual does that is, is very individual. So I'm going to tend to maybe talk about, um, it, it's going to sound like I'm talking about it black and white, but it's not really like that. So when you, when you die here, you realize that you are still aware your consciousness isn't gone. You just find yourself conscious, but not in the old physical reality. That's when you first know that something's wrong, <laughs> that uh, you have died. In fact, a lot of times you don't even know that you've died. You just realize that you're aware in some other place. And you may have been coming to that place and having that experience for the last two years before you actually died. It's a long, slow kind of death. And, 
not a death like uh, you know a sudden heart attack in your sleep or an automobile accident or something that happens rather quickly. Then it is kind of black and white. But so you become aware that you that you are aware, and it's not you know this is this is not Kansas. You know you kind of look around and it's not where you think of and you don't really know maybe it's a dream or what it is and eventually you kind of your physical reality starts to disappear like a dream and you're no longer too connected to that and for the for the average person at that point you're a little confused and don't really know where you are or what's going on so and I'm talking about a person that has no strong beliefs now if you have strong beliefs you're going to wake up and you're going to be inside of that belief structure. But I'm talking about somebody who's not going to have a strong belief. And they wake up and they're not quite sure what's going on. But very soon, before you get panicky or before uh, you know you get upset, like, where am I? You, it's a pleasant place. Nothing hurts. Everything's fine. You're kind of free. And you, know, you get this sense of well-being, that there's not a problem, which is very delightful. If what you were just in was terrible pain and, and uh, you know, a very miserable situation, suddenly being without all that misery is, is like a wonderful experience. So it's very positive. And as you look around, typically somebody will show up and, hello, you know, nice to see you here. I've got some, you know, i got some of your friends over here. We've been waiting for you. You know, come on over this way. It's that kind of thing. It's very chummy and personable and friendly because the only thing now that would cause you trouble would be for you to panic and get upset and start to scream, "Where am I?" You know, I've been, I've been kidnapped. You know, this is this is not this is not my body. You know, that would be a problem. So instead, you're distracted and it's all kept very light and friendly and nobody starts giving you deep lessons in philosophy and, you know, metaphysics and what's exactly happened to you and that this is a transition and, you know, you don't get any of that. It's more of a, you know, hello, hi, we've been, we've been waiting for you. Come on over this way. Got some people, uh, uh, maybe you remember, or you'd like you to meet. And it's more of a positive, get you engaged, get your mind off anything that maybe used to be on and get you refocused in a different kind of reality frame. So it's that pleasant, friendly sort of interface that, most people get. And from there, it just depends on how you react and interact. If you're a very uh, um, kind of frightened type and you're not sure what's going on and you're afraid that uh, you know somebody's going to mug you or something else is going to happen and that these people are acting friendly and you don't trust anybody who smiles, you know, because there's always some ulterior motivation behind that smile. If, if that's the kind of mindset you have, then they probably will try to come up with something that will relax you, like, you know, Uncle Fred has been dead for, you know, 10 years or something. And, well, here, Uncle Fred like to say hello to you. I'm like, Uncle Fred, what's he doing here? And then you start to get the idea that maybe you're not in the physical reality anymore if you're the same place Uncle Fred is. And all of that is just stuff to relax you, to make you feel everything's okay all right, there's not a problem here. And then they give you process, stuff to do. Come over here, do this, wait here, and you know, we'll, somebody will be here will talk to you. You know, I'm just the greeter. I'm like the Walmart greeter. You know, I'm here to say hello and welcome you in and maybe introduce you to some relatives. But now just go over there and wait a while. 
So all of it's done to keep you in a positive attitude and to give you time to let go of what was your past life. Keep your mind focused on something else and your last life starts to slide away from you like these dreams we were talking about. It starts to get gray and then you lose detail and pretty soon you're not even concerned with it, not even thinking about it anymore. You're just kind of wholly focused in this new reality. Very much like being in a dream. I mean, that's the way it is in your dream, right? When you go into a dream, you're not kicking and screaming about what you left behind. You're just into the dream, and you're reacting to that dream. And if it's a pleasant dream, then you have a pleasant time. So it's sort of like that, and it seems kind of dreamlike to you. But if you, if you are a very relaxed person, and you kind of know what's going on, and you've, you've been around this block enough times that that uh, you don't need a lot of hand-holding and a lot of processing, and you don't get all that. So it's not that everybody gets that. That's just kind of the typical person who's clueless about a larger reality or anything else. They don't have real strong beliefs that are you know, religious beliefs about what's going to happen when you die, so they don't have a lot of preset focus. Um, this is kind of what they get. It's a, it's a, it's a nice uh, welcome, uh, very plain vanilla, just meant to relax you and keep you from getting excited and let the stuff kind of float away that's around you and then you will process it and eventually somebody will come and uh, ask you, you know, what you'd like to do, you know, would you like, you know, what's, what's next? And you probably don't know and you say, well, what's possible, you know, what can I do? And they can maybe give you a few things and you might do that and eventually you'll get around to the point where you're saying, well, I'd really like to get back in another life. I'd really like to get back engaged in, in, in this interaction. And you realize that it's about growth and, and those kinds of things. And all that comes as you're ready for it. Some people take longer. Some people say, oh, what I want to do is I want to sit on the cloud and learn to play a harp, you know, or something like that, because they have that in their mind. So maybe they go do that for a while. But eventually you get tired of that and you want to uh, move on. So it just depends on the individual. It's a very individual process that, uh, that takes place. And this is a reality frame that's just a frame that processes people. And there are entities that work this reality frame that are used to all kinds. People come in with very strong beliefs, then they tend to have that belief. You know, they're expecting a golden gate and somebody with a, you know, with a clipboard and, you know, checking their name off and that kind of thing, then that's what they get but then that slowly transitions into the other thing that's just kind of friendly and nice and okay and you know, don't worry about it. So they, if, if they can just be easily transitioned out of that belief, then that's what's done. But if you have a real, um, what we say, an obsession with a belief, then sometimes that transition isn't so easy as to uh, you know, make it quickly. And then it just takes longer, but it always happens. It just takes a person a little longer to let go of that obsession and, uh, and get on with it. So that's what happens. It's pretty, it's pretty benign sort of thing. And depending on how much hand-holding you need, that's how much hand-holding you get. So those who don't need any hand-holding at all, you know, well, they, they, leave one, they leave the physical reality and almost immediately start planning on what they're going to do next and who they're going to do it with and what will the circumstances be? Because they're kind of old hands. They may have you know people that they work with, and 
they start putting together another another plan almost immediately. They don't need to go stand in line and you know wait for somebody to come explain it to them or meet their relatives or any of that. They they dispense with all of that. So it's a very individual process. So to say what happens to people, I have to tell you all kinds of things because it's different for everybody depending on on what your needs are at the time. But whatever your needs are, they will meet those needs and work you around eventually to the next experience packet. And what it is you need to learn in that experience packet and the kind of experience packet that would be an optimal packet for your learning. Now that optimal is obviously just probable. Once you get there and start making decisions and other people start making decisions that affect you, it could go any which way. So you just kind of optimize roughly the, the probability of it being a really good uh, set up for you to learn next time. And sometimes people come with really hard over ideas like, well, the reason I was such a bad guy last time and, you know, robbed all those people and, you know, mugged people and did all those nasty things was because I was poor. That was the thing. If I hadn't been poor, I wouldn't have been that desperate and I wouldn't have done all those things. And if they're very adamant about that, then they may well come back next time wealthy and they will, of course, mug people and do all the same things, except they do it in different ways. Instead of hitting them with an iron pipe, you know, they, you know, foreclose on their mortgage and, you know, take their money in a, in a legal way rather than an illegal way. But they turn out to be the same kind of person that they were before, making much of the same kinds of mistakes. They just did it in a different style, in a different way. And then that old excuse about, well, I, the only reason I did that was that I had all this uh, wealth and uh, it was just so easy, you know, to hurt people. And, you know, then eventually they realize that all of that's BS and that they did that because that's the way they are and they need to grow up. And now let's give you a lifetime where it's more likely that you're going to succeed now that you've seen who you are. So sometimes you go through several lifetimes just figuring out who you are. You say in the beginning, you don't even have a sense of what it's all about. And then if you've been around this a whole lot of times, you don't need any of that. You know exactly who you are. You know exactly what you need to work on, and you either are happy or disappointed about whether or not you made much, you know, much progress, and you plan the next one. So it depends on you as to what happens next, and what how you're how you're met and greeted, and and uh, how much handholding or not that you get. Um, that kind of thing. It's all very individual because this really is about you in the sense this is your your uh, learning, your lesson plan, you're trying to grow up, and the system wants you to succeed. The system has no no uh, incentive for you to do anything other than succeed. So the system's trying to help you succeed by giving you what you need to succeed. But you have to do the succeeding. It can't do it for you. You have to make the better choices. So that's kind of the what happens when you die depends on you and where you are and uh, so on, but it can be anywhere from uh, a very simple, trivial transition to one that's more lengthy and, and uh, drawn out to get you to relax and, and kind of see things from a different perspective. Um, people who have near-death experiences, well, it's, they're not really dead yet. It's just the probability that they might die is reasonably high. You know, the probability of survival may only be 1 in 10 or 1 in 20 or maybe 1 in 100. So they're kind of on the fence. It's not a done deal yet, but the probability is such that uh, they're going to be here soon. You know, they're going to start to transition. 
it's likely. So they get to see a little bit of the transition process before it's determined that now the probability now is you're not going to be here and now you have to go back. So they get that kind of thing. Now, sometimes it's just what I've described. It's just a matter of probability. They start the process and get sent back. Other times, it's just a good excuse to give somebody a lesson that will help them see a bigger picture. So we know all about NDEs and that people have them. So if you're a person who would benefit from this bigger picture, you might have that NDE experience, even though it really wasn't all that likely anyway that you were going to die. You just have that NDE experience. You just have that, that happen to you. Maybe you stop breathing on the operating table for a while and you have your NDE, your near-death experience, and you come back and all of that was just so you could have the experience so that you come back and, and change your life. So it doesn't always have to be just exactly the way we think it is. Sometimes it's, it's, it's a planned experience, sometimes not. Sometimes it's very tentative and sometimes you, you, know, you start with the typical experiences, right? You come out, you find yourself kind of out of body in a different reality frame. All right, that's kind of where you start. You're aware, but you're not in Kansas any longer. Then you kind of look around and, and uh, there's nothing there. And then, oh, there's a tunnel. You know, I see light and you move toward the light. And those kinds of things are, are just artifacts of, uh, that are presented to you to help you get your bearings. You need some physical process. So you need tunnels and you need lights and you need that sort of thing because if it were all kind of non-physical, it's just voices and things, it would probably frighten you. So you need the physical process to feel relaxed in. So you get that. And then you meet the being of white light who tells you to be a good boy, pats you on the rump and sends you back in the game. You know, and that kind of thing. Or you meet the, the demon that, you know, tries to bite your head off and scares you and, you know, you run back into the game. It's hard to tell, but whatever the system thinks will be of value, most value to you, and depending on your beliefs and what you need to grow, you'll have an experience. And uh, the average person kind of has the average experience. That's why when they have NDE experiences, you'll see a whole bunch of them that are similar. Well, that's kind of the average experience. And then you have a few that are really on the far end of, of wonderful and a few that are on the far end of awful. And most of them meet somewhere in the middle, but they're all kind of life-changing, wow, big deal experiences. Well, not all. Some of them aren't. Some of them the people blow off and don't even remember. They block them out just like they do their dreams. Um, all NDE experiences aren't necessarily brought back. So that's a little bit about what it's like, you know, during the transition. And what were some of those other questions, Donna, that I uh, slipped over? Did I happen to well, hit? I, I think you hit on most of them. Um, Josh had asked if the physical matter reality personality is integrated into the um, IUOC. Um, I suppose some of those processes allow that to gradually happen. Well, sure. Um, the, the, the physical matter personality, you, you know, um, are an individual with a personality here, and that individual is your consciousness. You know, it's not your, it's not your avatar. Your avatar is just a computed physical body that you are in. You are the consciousness. So it's not really that you have to be integrated into the larger consciousness. You're a part of that larger consciousness. You're already integrated into it. 
you're a part of it. And all of the experiences and, and feelings and thoughts and choices that you made are all part now of that consciousness. So indeed, yes, your, your identity, you as, and your personality are all part of this, um, this IUOC, this larger consciousness that, that you're a part of. And it's not that that personality lives on as a separate personality. It does that in, in data and in the historical record. But it becomes integrated into this larger personality, but it's all still there. You know, how can we say this? It's, um, you're integrated into a whole consciousness, and what you've learned is part of that whole consciousness. But you, the individual that lived that life, all that data still exists. So you, the individual, exists in information. And I know a lot of people hear that and they say, yeah, but it's information, but that's not really being me. Well, it is. You are an <laughs> information system. And when you exist as information, that's not saying that that's a, that's a non-meaningful subset. That's what you are at the core anyway, is information. You've just integrated more information into a whole. That doesn't mean that you are, you are uh, gone. It just means that you are part of something something bigger. I know a lot of people have, have very, uh, they're very attached to their, to their uh, selves being the way they are. And it's very upsetting for them if they, as, as they are with all of their, you know, good parts and bad parts and, you know, the color of their hair and the color of their eyes and everything else doesn't go with them because they, they want the to know that me, just as I am now, you know, lives on forever. And that's just an ego problem. You know, you need to let that go. No, you, just as you are now, you know, doesn't go on forever. That's a character you play. You know, you, that, uh, it goes on forever as data in a history file. And it can always be re-energized. That data can be picked back up, thrown back in another lifetime, and maybe would be very similar personality. Maybe different body, but maybe very similar personality. That can be done, but it's just data when you're done. It actually was just data while you were while you were living too, but we don't think of it that way. So it's not really a big thing. Like oh, I'm I'm gone. You know, my personality, my wonderful personality is no longer around. That you just have to let go of. You're you're part of something larger, and that's good news, not bad news. And that that history of you can be reconstituted and sent back out and, and that same exact personality, you know, could uh, start over as an infant, which then it wouldn't say that exact personality very long because there's a lot of things that affect that personality from an infant on to the wonderful adult that you've become and you don't want to change ever. So, you know, it's you kind of have to realize that it's, this is a unique experience and that unique experience of you is unique and will just be there in the history and you cannot repeat you again even if the very same you personality is reborn you will be different you're not going to be you so that that you that you're so fond of is just this experience packet and uh, you need to let it go gracefully not need to have it persist forever because you couldn't Stand for the world to lose its wonderfulness, or whatever your reason is for being attached to that you that you are. It's uh, 
I don't really understand people who are like that, but I run into a lot of them who are very desperate to know that uh, they and their personality and everything about them will continue forever to be just that way. You know, well, if, if you want your avatar to always continue, you know, get a get a marble statue commissioned, you know, and then your body will always look just like that somewhere. But uh, this consciousness game is a is an evolving game, and nothing stands still. Everything evolves, including you and your personality. Tom, in the cases of uh, suicide, um, is that hard for the individual to, is it harder for them to let go of their scenario, their personality, their, their problem? Does sometimes, it take a long time? <clears throat> well, sometimes yes, sometimes no. It depends on the nature of the suicide. If the suicide is somebody who is extremely distraught, uh, you know, they are uh, uh, beset by problems, maybe they're a bit paranoid and think everybody's out to get them or whatever, but if it's, if it's a very dysfunctional end and they are committing suicide to escape the pain and the dysfunction because they just can't stand it anymore, they can't stand themselves anymore, so they're going to end themselves, that is a person that takes a little more hand-holding to make the transition because they come in in a, in a kind of a manic state, you see, and that's, that is harder, yes. But can those people always be transitioned? As far as I know, yes, they can always be transitioned. It does eventually all work out. They do eventually relax and let go of all of that, and they go on and everything's just fine. So it's not like it's a permanent problem. It just means a, a, a longer, more hand-holding kind of transition, but it, it's, going to be a, it's going to be a successful transition in any case. Now, there's a person who, uh, you know, that uh, some years back, Dr. Kevorkian helped, who they weren't manic and they weren't, you know, uh, wild with anger or anything else. They didn't detest themselves. They were just miserable. Maybe they were very, very old, or maybe they had terrible diseases that were very painful, and they just didn't see the point in struggling with this, and they just wanted to end it. Then that person would come out in an opposite viewpoint. It would be, boy, I'm glad I got rid of that. You know, there I was in terrible pain in this excruciating existence that was so miserable, and boy, does this feel good. You see, you'd have just the opposite. That transition would be a piece of cake. They'd be so happy to be there that, uh, you know, even if you met them gruffly, they'd still be happy to be there. You see, you don't even have a lot of hand-holding and soothing to do on that end. So it just depends on the nature of the suicide. And it doesn't take suicide. There's other people who die under uh, horrific circumstances. Maybe they, uh, maybe they, you know, had a boat capsized and they hung on a piece of driftwood for three days before they finally, you know, let go or something. Those people tend to also have rough transitions because they're so, they were so focused in hanging on and hanging on and not letting go that sometimes they will then transition and they're on this other side and they're still hanging on. They're not letting go and it takes a while to work out of that kind of an obsession too because they were hanging on in kind of a delirious state, you know, before they finally did die and they take a while before they get over it. So it's not just suicides, but anyone who dies in a very uh, critical situation, 
that has strong attachments to whatever, particularly their emotional attachments, the transition may take a little longer to work with them. And suicide is just one of those that might be like that. But I think the, the transitions, as far as I know, are always successful. I don't know of anybody that's permanently stranded. You know, the transition can be done. It's just some are, take longer than others. Some take more effort. So you don't have to worry. Sometimes people who die, they'll, they'll have a, a loved one die, and I'll get a letter. It says, you know, my Uncle Susie just, or Uncle Susie, right? Aunt Susie just died, and it, maybe it was Uncle Susie. You know, there's a song about a boy named Sue, but anyway, uh, somebody that you love dies, and they want to know, I just want to know that they're all right. Can you tell me that they're okay? And uh, they're okay. You know, it's it would be hugely improbable that they don't eventually get okay and go on. The system, you know, doesn't want to lose its, you know, its uh, entropy reducing staff that, you know, is having these lifetimes and growing up. So they'll be okay. And whether their transition is simple or not depends on them. But for the most part, they're just fine. They're doing, they're doing very well. Yeah, I'm sorry, I interrupted Donna. Oh, no, no, please. That's, uh, that's fine. Um, Justin has a question on death. I'm going to turn it over now to the, to some other questions that some of you still have left. We'll start with Justin. And then if each of you want to add one of the questions we didn't get to, we'll see how much we can fit in from there. Right. Go ahead, Justin. Okay. So Tom, my, my wife's grandma right now is in the beginning stages of death. She's uh, you know, she's still fairly healthy, but you can just kind of get the sense about her that it's uh, it's starting to come to an end. And her comment is that she's she's done. She's ready to die. Uh, and she's ready to go. You know, and of course, there's a lot of family members that are hanging on to the fact that they don't want her to die. Uh, what? How do you approach that as far as from the perspective of the person that's dying? What what can she do uh, to kind of instigate the death process? Because, you know, the physical body tends to hang on for quite a while based on the rule set. Can you kind of override the rule set in that sense? It does. Um, yes, you can override the, the rule set to some extent. Um, people who, what they call it in the medical world, uh, failure to thrive, that means that you no longer have a will to thrive. You, uh, you give up. You know, you, you want to die. You don't want to continue on. Um, that can be a big, uh, um, that raises your probability that you will die or die soon, you know, uh, just that you don't want to go on anymore, this failure to thrive, you know, and you have all kinds of, of uh, stories of that where, you know, two people have been together for, you know, 70 years and one of them dies and then within three months the other one dies too. And not of any particular reason, it's just failure to thrive, you know, they just don't want to go on anymore in that circumstance without that other person because that's been their whole life. So that sort of thing happens. Now, old, older people are often of a, of a dual mind. They, they're ready to go because they realize that what's left ahead of them is not a pretty sight. And they're not having a lot of quality of life. Everything hurts, you know, they can't, you can't get around, you know, it's hard to turn on a light because the fingers don't, really have the dexterity anymore and they maybe are incontinent and you know it goes on and on and on as you get older you have all these things that makes your life 
not as pleasant as it used to be, and they are ready to go. And enough of this. I don't, I don't see it's going to get any better. You know, it's not like, oh, I'm waiting for the miracle cure. You know, I'm 95 years old. You know, life is hard, and I don't expect a miracle cure. You know, and I don't see it getting any better. I'm ready to go. At the same time, they may be a little afraid of going. What's going to happen? Um, you know, am I ready for this? It's too late to do anything about it now, but um, maybe I'm not ready to go just yet. You see, so they have these two things that are competing, and sometimes when they get, when they make, they're kind of in that that um, in between stage. They may just let go mentally. They may let go. The consciousness may just kind of leave, and if the body keeps on living, well, the body will just run out of steam sooner or later. You know, in that in that case, you'll find elderly people who are not real communicative. They don't really interact much. I mean, they may know you when you come to see them or whatever, but mostly they're just kind of gone. Well, they're ones that, that are ready to go, um, but they're not yet ready to give up the physical. So they end up in this in-between situation where they're kind of gone but not gone because in their own mind they're kind of gone but not gone too. You know, they kind of want to go but not want to go. So they end up, the physical mirrors, you know, the, the consciousness in that, in that sense. So you get that kind of lingering often for a long time. But I think it's, a, it's unfortunate that the people around them basically deny what they know is true. They know that the end is coming and that it's near. And they maybe wouldn't even mind discussing it or even talking about it or other things about their life. But they can't because as soon as they say something about it, they go, "Oh no, no, no! You're not going to die. You're going to, you're going to, you know." They can't even communicate with anybody. So what that does is it isolates them. They're not only in this very profound part of their experience, which is the dying experience, but everybody's in denial about it. They can't carry on a conversation. They can't talk about it. They can't interact with people. They can't even hug somebody and tell them goodbye because the person would deny it. Oh, no, it's not goodbye. It's not goodbye. No, no, this isn't. And what they want to do is say goodbye, and they can't even do that because the person won't say goodbye to them, you see. So it's unfortunate that they get isolated, and everybody refuses to deal with them or talk with them or have any, any real conversation with them that is really meaningful to them where they are now and what they're going through, you see. So they're very isolated. Their family kind of deserts them in a sense because they refuse to be a part of it. And that's unfortunate. That kind of makes the final, the final dying scenario of most people, most of us, is doubly unpleasant. Not only is it hard physically, but it's really hard emotionally too because there, nobody will... Nobody will go with you with it. You know, there's nobody there to talk to. You're all alone. Maybe the maybe the old person in the room next door. You know, if you're in a nursing home, you know, maybe they'll talk about it. But even then, when you talk to other people, you're expected to be in denial. If you're not, if you talk openly and honestly, the staff would probably tell you not to leave your room because you're you know depressing the other patients or something. Everyone in our culture is expected to be in denial. That's how you're supposed to die: is in denial that you never will. And of course, everybody knows that you are, and you do too, but the, 
the expected behavior is that everybody is in denial right up until after you're dead. You know, and then everybody wails like it was an unexpected thing, you know, and nobody was prepared for it. So it's just the way we deal with death. It's very, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just not productive and it's not helpful. You know, it'd be better to talk with the person, find out what is their interest, what are their fears, you know, talk to them about it and let them express themselves and let them explain to you how they felt about their life and not interrupt them and say, oh, we'll talk about that grandma, you know, you're going to be here forever. But say your goodbyes and uh, be honest and straightforward, I would think would be a much better way to do, but it's hard to do that in this culture because as soon as you do that, you're cruel and unfeeling and, you know, all this other kind of stuff that's seen that uh, you shouldn't do that. And suddenly uh, you've just created a bigger problem because now there's all sorts of other issues and, and the poor person who's, who's the one that's dying now is part of this process that's created difficulties for everybody else. And, you know, and that just makes them more unhappy because now look at all this unhappiness because they didn't pretend right or somebody else didn't pretend right. Or, so it's just the way we deal with death is that we don't deal with it. We deny it right up to the end, basically, most of the time. And we refuse to talk about it even when the dying person wants to. And sometimes they don't want to deal with it either. You know, they're in denial and they're, uh, they're not going to mention it and don't want to talk about it. So unfortunately, that's just the way it is in our culture. It's, uh, you know, so with your, with your uh, person you're talking about, you know, you just, if you're just there and hold their hand, you know, just sit down and kind of hold their hand and you don't really have to say too much. You just give them a sense that you're with them and you know, you know, and they know that, that, you know, what's going on and whatever, and you're just there and you hug them and you just give them that kind of warmth. You don't really have to say anything. They know and they appreciate it. And that's probably about the best way that you can, that you can interact. And uh, it's, it's a hard, it's hard dying in this, in this culture in the, in the sense that there really is no support system. You know, it's, it's your own, your own, it's your own experience and nobody's going to share it with you. Yeah, that's, that's definitely true. That, that helps me a lot. That gives me some, uh, some tools that maybe I can use. Thank you. Yeah, now with my own experience with my own mom, she died not that long ago. Uh, few years back, she was 99 and one half. She was been about six months of uh, getting to the 100. Wow. And uh, it was obvious that she was to the point where she was ready to go. You know, she just was starting to stop. She was stop interacting, you know, with other, uh, other people and things. She just was been more reclusive and so on. And it was just time to go. And uh, like I say, that was, she's about, um, I don't know, seven, eight hundred miles away from where I live, but I made trips like three or four times a year, every few months, you know, we make trips up to see her. And uh, the last time I was there, it was obvious that she was really ready to go. She kind of made up her mind and, and I was going, well, I just gave her a big hug, told her I loved her and said goodbye. And within three days, she was gone. You know, but uh, now I, I pretended and said, oh, no, you're going to live forever, wherever she may have lasted another two or three weeks, you know, dragging herself through more misery because she hadn't been able to kind of end it the way she wanted, you know, but that was a, that was an ending that, uh, you know, kind of gave her permission to leave 
you'll have to stay here for me, Mom. You know, I understand. You know, it's time to go. And uh, so that was kind of my own personal experience with that. And I think it was because of that interaction that uh, she hung around until I made the trip. You know, I was planning to make the trip or whatever, and she hung around until I made the trip, and we said goodbye, and she was done then. My sister lived in that area, so they'd already had their, you know, their connection, and she was kind of waiting for me to say goodbye to me, and after that happened, she was gone in days. So that, um, that was my own personal experience with that. It is a hard thing, and she went... She lasted the 99 and a half, and, and at the end, life was just too hard to be bearable. It's just too difficult. There's so much you can't do anymore. And, you know, things hurt, and your fingers are cold, and your toes are always frozen, and you can't, it's hard to get up and go from the, you know, from the chair to the bed, and you're not continent anymore, and it just doesn't get to be a lot of purpose. You know, what, what am I learning now? You know, I'm learning stick to you know, I'm learning to hang in there even though it's tough. Okay, I've been hanging in there even though it's tough for, you know, the last decade. What really am I learning now from hanging in there and being tough that I didn't learn in the last decade of hanging in there while it was tough from 89 to 99, you know? So it gets to be pointless. And um, it's better just to let go. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, letting go is hard in our culture for everybody, the ones left behind and the one going. It's a very difficult thing to do. We don't support letting go. We support hanging on. Yeah. Oh, thank you. So it looks like Donna had to cut out on us. Um, I think she had posted for basically everyone to find a question they didn't get to ask and ask it if there's time. Okay. I'm not sure what time we're at right now, but I think we're still under a little bit under three hours. I don't know if we want to do one more. Or... Oh yeah, sure. We we go until we're done, or until the the uh, machine drops off <laughs> drops us off at the end of our time limit, whichever whichever occurs first. And usually they're about the same time. The machine drops us off real close to when we quit. So uh, that's about at the three hour mark. So sure, go go on. If we got another one, uh, somebody yeah. step up the. Mike and Okay, I have one. Uh, let me read it here. Tom, my current understanding is that our current perception of ourselves as individuals is due to the way our IUOCs have been sectioned off from the rest of the whole of consciousness that you call AUM in the book. It seems to me as we evolve and graduate past these barriers being necessary, they're removed one by one and we become operational in a wider and wider part of the whole, thereby becoming in a sense less individual or at least less isolated. In general, would you say that there are varying degrees of individuality and what are the implications and or uses of such varying degrees in the big picture? Okay. Um, There's a word you used there. let me see. I'd like to use your word because it'll work better. Um, um, I'm reading. I can also. I just brought your your, your question up too, so I, I'm reading it uh, as well. Um, you said uh, uh, becoming, in a sense, less individual or at least less isolated. So that's the word I was looking for. Isolated. 
So yes, as we grow, we do get to live in a bigger and bigger world. So in a sense that you equate being individual with being isolated, and as much as those two are connected, then the answer to your, to your question is yes, there are varying degrees of individuality. There's varying degrees of isolation. Okay. Now, if you think of individuality as you being different from other people, well, you're always different from other people. So individuality in the sense of being um, unique is that you're always unique. But you are, you are um, living in a larger reality. You have a larger view. You feel more connected to other people. You're less isolated in that sense. You're, you, you feel you know, not only all of humanity, but all of consciousness, you know, the critters included. You, know, you, you realize that we're all connected and that we have a, a mission here and that we're, we are evolving and some sense of where we're evolving to. And you do get this big picture. And you can live in that big picture, and that big picture may include some non-physical um, realms as well that you grow up in. It's not just that you interact in the dreaming world and in this physical world, but there may be the dreaming world and, and some other places that you interact. You may actually help in that transition we were just talking about. You can go there and, and kind of work in that transition area, uh, helping people uh, who have died, you know, transition to the other to uh, the next uh, packet. There's all kinds of things that you might do as a citizen of the larger reality that isn't just being in this physical reality and you have a bigger picture then and you're living in a bigger space. So yes, you do uh, become less isolated, but you're still unique. You still un you are uniquely you, but you also feel yourself as a part of the whole thing. So you never entirely lose your individuality as far as your uniqueness, but you do lose your isolation. You, you become aware of yourself as part of something bigger. So before you were maybe just a hand, or maybe just a finger on a hand, and you were only saw the perspective of your existence only from the finger's perspective. But now, from the fingers, your finger's perspective has grown, and you see the perspective of the, you know, of the of the hand itself, of the wrist, of the arm, you know, of the body, and of the interaction of that body with other individuals with hands and fingers and so on. And suddenly, you, you see this whole big world of interaction that you know you are a part of, but you're still just a finger. You say you still are a, a unique thing, but you know that your piece of of something that is, that is much bigger. So I, I don't want to say that your individuality disappears because you always have a sense of uniqueness just because you are an IUOC. You're an individual chunk of consciousness and that's different than another individuated chunk of consciousness. Like you are a finger, you're the index finger, but that's different than the pinky finger. You see, you're different, but you're similar. And then eventually you kind of, you're all part of the same hand that's working to do the same things. You know, you, the index finger and you, the pinky finger all have to hold on to the same thing, you know, the same steering wheel or whatever you're doing. You're all working together to do things and you're one of a team, but you still have your, your uniqueness as an IUOC and as a, as an entity that's learning and growing and evolving and you maintain that uniqueness, but you lose your um, 
isolation. You no longer feel like, you know, it's like me against the world. You know, I'm here and everything else is out there and I have to make sure that I get my stuff the way I want it and the way I need it to be and so on. And then the rest of the world is like foreign to you. Instead of being foreign to you, they're like a part of you. They're like a, another, uh, you know, they're extension of the same big thing you are a part of. So yes, it changes and your reality gets much bigger and you may live more aware in your dream reality to where your dreams are lucid. Like Polly says, you watch them from two different perspectives, from the actual dream that's going on and from you as the observer watching you dream and react from that and uh, learning from both angles. And you may also be uh, in, the, in the larger frame. Uh, you know, I just call that the out-of-body frame. There's nothing really special about that. that. That's kind of a grouping. It covers all sorts of reality frames. It's just kind of other out there in the non-physical. You may be doing things there, uh, maybe getting a lot of information there and, and uh, be involved in various things there at the same time. So now your reality has maybe spanning three or four or five different reality frames. And you're living in all of them and continuously, and you're aware in all of them, more or less continuously. It's just uh, you, you're more or less aware in them, uh, depending on where your focus is at the time. But they're kind of all parts of you, and it's all um, working together, and you're having experiences everywhere, making choices everywhere, and those choices are all helping you, you know, you, the consciousness, evolve. So then it's just a bigger picture. So, you know, you can think about that. We do the same thing here in a limited sense is that we have, uh, you know, you have somebody who's maybe uh, all alone, lives, lives in the same house they were born in, you know, never been out of the county they were born in, and they have kind of a, a small picture of the world. But now they go out and they travel, and they travel extensively all over the globe. How does that change them? Well, they live in a bigger reality now. You know, they, their, their uh, perspective is so much larger than just a little perspective. And it's the same thing. So as you grow the quality of your consciousness, it's like you get to travel. You get to go places and see how other people live and see bigger pictures. And you see all, even your own community and the own, your own you know, family, you see them from a different perspective. It's, it's, uh, not the, it's not, you know, you are less isolated. You realize they're a part of you and you're a part of them. And we're all in this together. And together, we're creating this reality that we live in. And you take some responsibility for this reality the way it is. And at the same time, you let other people be how they are because, you know, they have to do their own thing, make their own decisions, and, and live their own life and walk their own path. And it just gives you a whole different perspective on, you know, I'm the father of this household, and I need to tell everybody else what to do. I need to tell my children when they have to come in. I need to tell my wife when she's fixed for dinner. I'm in charge here, you see. That's a very small reality, and uh, that uh, once you have a bigger reality, you stop acting like that because you see that all these people are, just, you know, on their own paths, doing their own things, and it's not for you to make their decisions for them as to what they what they do. You're limiting their choices that way. You're not helping them by your superior knowledge. If you think do the right things, you're actually limiting them from making good choices. So a bigger picture will change the way you interact in all your pictures. So every, every um, reality frame that you're in will in some way modify you and change you and you will act differently in all those reality frames. It's all, the, it's all one growing process. So yes, uh, we do lose um, our 
uh, isolation, but we still have our identity of being an IUOC, but we, we realize we're part of the larger consciousness system and feel very much a part of it and very much connected to it, but we're still an IUOC. And we're an IOUC with lots and lots of experience, with maybe a, you know thousands of lifetimes. We're all of that, and we own all of that. We're not just the personality of the last avatar we played. We are all of it. So I'm also imagining when I'm asking this question, um, if we're taking that concept of of a kind of sharing in sharing in like the viewpoint of others and seeing ourselves as a part of this wider picture, if we crank that to the absolute max and say you have a group of IOCs that are extremely evolved and they uh, cooperate on such a level that all their thoughts are kind of in one big swirling mass, like they're they're sharing everything. It just kind of seems to me that that would make them now not really like they like they've transcended to a higher form of existence, and they're not really they're one unit now of something else. Yeah, exactly. And we are, you know, if you watch the uh, talk I gave in uh, uh, Spokane uh, a few months back, I kind of talk about that. Whenever you become cooperative to that level. With those around you, you you turn into something else. You become something bigger. You you become kind of a another organism of which you're a part, and that's part of the process. That's what the bacteria did when they ended up not being just single little bacteria, but became uh, you know uh, uh, multi-celled creatures. And then the multi-celled creatures did when they became uh, creatures that had uh, specialized functions and so on, you know, up that chain. You become something different. That bacteria that was just a lone bacteria and then that cell that's a differentiated cell that's part of the eyeball of, uh, you know, a, a monkey or a human being or something, you know, it's still that same kind of little cellular creature. You can see kind of the bacteria, if you will, in that eyeball cell. It's a specialized bacteria, if you will. Now I'm using bacteria in a very generic sense of a, of a, of a uh, living cell. And you become something else, but you're still what you were. You see, so here we are as human beings, and I don't know how many billions of cells we have, and all of those little cells still have a life. They're active. They do things. Information comes in. Information goes out. They process it. You know, they have an environment that they interact with. Uh, they, uh, at their own level, perhaps have their own decisions to make, though not on an intellectual level, but they, uh, they're still functioning like that, except now they have so many more choices. They live in a bigger reality frame. They're part of something bigger, and they're contributing to a whole that's more than themselves. And it would be the same way as you take that further. And it sounds like an old um, Star Trek uh, uh, movie where they are not movie, but the program where they uh, end up with this big brain that uh, is kind of a, a connection. The whole, what was it? Um, you know, there were all these parts that were all part of just one big massive brain, and they, they looked like a bunch of individual cells, but it was all part of this brain floating through space. So it's sort of like what you're saying. You have all these pieces, and they've all kind of merged into a cooperative thing together. Well, that defines something else. And you may get bunches of these something else's, which then they have to learn to cooperate and merge into something bigger. 
you see, as we go up this chain and what, you know, we're, we are becoming more and more like the larger consciousness system, more and more undifferentiated, if you will, more and more a part of the larger consciousness system. And that's as it should be. We are, you know, you become more integrated, more connected. And that's kind of where evolution uh, uh, takes us. But it's not a closed system. So it's not like every living entity that's on the planet today and that's it. That's all there is, you know. And now we all just have to evolve. Eventually, every, every entity from the bacterium up will all be one big, you know, global happy creature. It's not that way. There's always new things. There's always new entities coming in at the bottom. There's always other entities going to other systems. And it's fluid. This is an information system. It's not a physical system. So when you're thinking about all of these entities kind of glommed together in something bigger, this is information that they're a part of. You can also be part of some other information system. So they can get, you can get interwired and interconnected to other things. So the, the room for integration is pretty big, but that's the evolution. And as we do that, the whole system lowers its entropy. Now, where will this, where, what will the larger consciousness system be a million years from now or 100 million years from now? Who knows? I don't think it knows itself. You know, this is evolution. It'll just happen however it happens. But it's all one big system, and we're just part of that process. And, yes, our, our destiny is to become part of a larger process, just as you described. That doesn't mean that we lose freedom. It doesn't mean that we lose choice, that we just become a, a cog in a bigger machine. As you become part of a larger process, you get more freedom, more choices, a broader array of things to do and be part of. This is an information system. When you're thinking a physical cog trapped in a machine, you're thinking physical process. This is consciousness process. This is information process. You're not trapped in a cog like a physical system in a bigger machine. As a, as a consciousness, you have more choice, more freedom, more things to be a part of than you had when you were running around in this avatar's body here on planet Earth as you, as you go up this chain that you're imagining. So it's not a, matter, uh, not a matter of, oh, you lose freedom. Now you're just a cell in an eyeball, right? And that's all you do. You don't uh, have the choices to go be a fingernail cell or something else. You're just this and you're stuck there. And it's not like that. Now you're thinking physical process. You say, your information, you're all over the place. You're everywhere. You're, you are, you're pieces of everything as information. The amount of choices you have, what you interact with becomes much, much bigger, much more freedom. So it, it, uh, people get stuck on the idea if they're going to be a piece of something bigger, that means that they've lost their freedom. Now they can't be any old piece, they're that piece, and they're going to stay that piece because they're part of a machine. It's not like that in consciousness. You're not part of a physical machine that has interlocking parts, and now you're the eyeball or something. You're a cog in a, you know, in a big monster machine. You are, you're set freer. You have a bigger playground to play in. More things that you can do as you become part of this larger consciousness system, not less. Maybe I can have a question now, if, if you don't mind. Okay. Um, Oliver, I, I, tell us when we're within uh, a few minutes of uh, hitting the wall here. Yeah, I will. Okay. All right, um, go ahead, Bob. Yeah, well, maybe if you see the questions, uh, you should pick the ones which are, say, resonating with you. 
No, no, I, I'm, I'm here to answer your questions. Okay, thank you. So in that case, uh, I would be interested in your opinion about uh, empathy and uh, basically uh, I'm struggling in the, well, not struggling, but I'm dealing with the question of how much force, how much I should manipulate uh, things that I have at my disposal, uh, even maybe with good intentions, but uh, how do I know which intentions are good? And um, basically, um, Empathy is uh, one thing that basically gives me more information to use, as I understand it. But uh, it's not usually used in the best way because I have the feeling, at least in my understanding, empathy uh, is used to calm down the situation. If, if it's used properly in the context I know it, it's used to calm down the situation, to uh, make the other person more comfortable but I don't think that's always the best uh, outcome. Maybe sometimes the outcome is better if uh, we stir up uh, the situation more and uh, the other person is challenged with something. And then after the dust settles down, maybe the outcome will be shown as uh, entropy lowering. Right. So my question was, what is your take on uh, empathy? Uh, how do you think most people use it? And uh, in this context of uh, whether it's always something, uh, let's say, calming down, uh, we should be using, or what's your take on that? Okay. I would have a much more general uh, uh, idea of empathy than, than what you, you just mentioned. Empathy, to me, is being able to see reality from the viewpoint of another person. You have empathy with that person when you can understand their reality. So, if, you know, see what they, you know, feel what they feel. Um, connect with them, not just in an intellectual way, but in, in an empathetic way, you become able to understand them from the first person, not just they tell you, and now you are imagining how, what those words mean to you. That's you as a filter in between, but you actually feel their feelings. You, you can get a sense of what they're, what they're thinking and feeling, you know, what they're tasting, you know, what they're touching. You basically can have empathy with them and see their reality from their viewpoint. And when you have that, you should never approach a problem of being helpful with the idea that I will give you the solution. Okay, here's a problem. Here's a person with a problem. They've got a problem. Maybe they're upset about something. Maybe somebody died in their family, or maybe they, you know, just the boss just fired them, or maybe they, whatever. They got a problem of some sort. Boyfriend doesn't like them anymore. You know, who knows? And what you, if you approach it from, I can help them solve the problem. You know, I, here's the, you know, from there, that's fine. But when you help them solve the problem, you mean you're going to help them solve their own problem, not that you're going to help them solve it the way you know that it ought to work out. You see, you don't want to offer them a solution. You want to offer them support to come to their own solution. So it's not a matter of, well, this person needs to calm down. Therefore, I'll, you know, I'll come and we'll, I'll connect and I will be the calming influence on them. Okay, now, maybe if you think they're hysterical and, and can't process the problem very well, and calming down would be a good thing, 
well, maybe you can do that, right? You can calm them down. But if you start with the idea of, I'm going to calm them down so that they can see more clearly that what they're doing is not right or whatever, now you are starting to lead the witness. You, you, you want them to go in a way that you think is obviously good for them. Here they are, hysterical, and obviously they need to calm down and see that such and such and such is like this because that's just logical and it's right there, and they're not seeing it because they're all worked up. So you'll calm them down and, and help them see that, you see. Now that's you leading the witness. That's you think you know where they need to go and they need to not be where they are, which is hysterical. Well, that may not be the case. They may have a lot of emotional energy that they just need to let go. And if you make them calm down before they're ready, that may trap all that emotional energy in there and they may spend the next three weeks, you know, miserable because they didn't let it go. Now, have you helped them? Well, it seemed like you were helping them. Obviously, they didn't seem to be making much progress just standing around, you know, screaming or whatever it is they were doing, and you think you were helping them, but maybe not. Maybe you should have just gone over and sat down with them and been there, or just reached up and held their hand while they were screaming, or just been in the room, just listened to them scream, you know. Those things may have been actually more helpful than calming them down. So the point is, never put your, yourself in the place of knowing what's best for them and then helping them get to that point that you know is best for them. You see, that's a slippery slope. Now, it may be that you know what's best for them and it may be that you can help them make that transition. But if they don't make it on their own, if it isn't in their own way, if they don't work off that energy first, if they don't whatever, if it's not in their own way of doing it on their own path, it won't be as helpful as you think it should be. And then you'll get to the end and it won't actually work. It'll sort of work, but not work. And then you're a little frustrated. What did you do wrong? And what else could you have done? And they're frustrated because you're frustrated with them because they learned that, you know, they don't think that they've been the way that you think that they ought to be. And you see all this complication gets up and you just end up creating a bigger problem than not. So the best thing to do is if you just care for them, you just love them. And at that point, you just be with them and you give them the support to work it in their own way so that if what they need is a shoulder to cry on then you've got the shoulder to cry on but you don't necessarily have to tell them stop crying you can just let that go and if what they need is somebody to holler at and blame well you're there to let them holler at you and blame you for whatever it is that's wrong and that's okay too if that's what they need because once they get done with that they'll realize how foolish all that hollering and blaming was, you know, and then they'll have to make an apology. And then maybe they'll learn something about venting and, you know, having to apologize later, and you've enabled them to do that. So it's, you kind of have to be there to, to let them be how they are, but encourage them. So if the hysteria went from productive to unproductive, because now they're banging their head against the wall and you're afraid that might hurt them, maybe you need to go put your arm around them and tell them to come over and sit down in the chair. So that would be a good thing to do. I wouldn't just stand there and let them bang their head against the wall because that's what they want to do. You might think at that point, that's gone a little too far and it's self-destructive and they're not going to appreciate, you know, that you let them do that and then you just set them in a chair. But you don't necessarily set them in a chair and tell them to straighten up. You set them in a chair and just now you've got it to a, a better place. Let them go ahead and maybe cry while they're sitting in the chair. So I don't say you never go in or you never interfere 
or you never interact or you never say anything. It's not that you just stand on the outside and watch and you're there in case they need you. You can interact. You can interfere, but you have to interfere carefully to where you're not pushing them in a direction that isn't natural for them to go in. Because if it doesn't feel right to them, they'll push back. And then you will end up creating a bigger problem. So it's something that you do need a lot of empathy for because you need to see the reality from their viewpoint. And if you can see the reality from their viewpoint, then with that empathy, you can be as optimum amount of help, interfere where you need to interfere, butt out where you need to butt out, and be the optimum help. Whereas if you don't have that empathy, you're just guessing. Oh, what should I do here now? You know, what should I do? Should I, you know, leave them over here and have them sit down, or should they bang that head just maybe a few more times before I leave them over? What should I do? You never know because you're looking at it from your perspective, and from your perspective, you have no idea what you ought to do. In that case, just do what comes to you as far as your your intuition, not from your intellect. Use your intuition. Where do you think you should intercede? Do the best you can. You may help, you may hurt a little, but at least you tried to do the best you can. And it's better to do that and just stand off to the side and figure that, well, you know, work it out on your own, sink or swim. You know, call me if you need me, I'll be here. You know, that's not much help. You, you sometimes do have to connect. So I, I'm not saying just stand off to the side and let them call you. You have to insert yourself, but just do it carefully and sensitively. Are you helping or are you not helping? And often you don't know. And if you're working from your intellect, you'll probably never know. The way to do that is to work from an empathy with them to where you feel their pain. And you may feel the pain that they have needs to be let out emotionally. You don't want to close that up until it's ready. Let them cry until they stop crying. Just be there with them. At that point, if they're with you and you're just being there holding their hand and they're crying, then that's enough. They're very grateful for you just being there because if they were alone and had to do this, it would be even worse. Just the fact that they're not alone is a big help. But you can feel that just by getting, you know, I say getting inside their head. That sounds invasive, but basically it's having the empathy to know what their reality is like and what they're feeling and then just being there for them, what they need. So that's the way to do it. If you do it intellectually, you're almost, you're always going to be, not knowing whether you're helping or hurting because you can't judge what's going on inside their head or what they need from analyzing it from your own perspective. You have to see it from their perspective and that doesn't, that doesn't include analyzing. You don't analyze it from their perspective. You just feel it from their perspective and then work from that feeling. And then you are optimizing what you can do for them. And sometimes there's not much that you can do for somebody other than just be there. Just be there for them. Just be in the room, you know, hold a hand, uh, go get them a glass of water, or hand them a handkerchief, um, suggest that they sit down in a chair rather than pace the floor because the pacing just adds to the anxiety, you see, or the banging the head just adds to the anxiety. So you can do some things like that, but uh, often there's not a whole lot you can say after, until they get it together enough that they want to talk about it and then let them lead the conversation and don't give them the answers. Give them the support to find their own answers. So that's how you, you can do it. So if you're telling them what to do, you know, what you need to do is this, that's wrong. You know, that's really not going to help them. 
even if they take your advice and it works, it's not really going to help them. They need to get there because then it's theirs. They own it and they've made the decision and they, they grow from it. If they're just following advice, then they're a child following daddy's advice or mom's advice and it works out for them, but they're not really you know, doing it on their own. And they know that. They know they're not doing it on their own and then they like themselves less because they feel inadequate. So now you're just adding to another problem that they have. You see? So that's the, that's the thing. You have to uh, let them do it and learn, even if that means letting them experience some pain, because you know the answer. You can explain it to them and the pain would go away. Look, here's the trouble. You're standing on a tack. You know, what you need to do is, you know, move over, get your foot off the tack, and the pain will stop. You know, well, if it was that simple, you could do it. But mostly these issues that make people upset are not that simple. And you can't tell them just to get off the tack because the tack is a very complicated process in their mind of, of how it is they connect to that tack. And you have to let them untangle that process themselves. And you can make suggestions. You can say, well, look, here's three different ways you can look at the problem. You can look at the problem in that this is just a tack. All you have to do is disassociate yourself from it. Or you can say, this is your tack and you need to deal with it. You need to, you know, this pain is, how can you learn from this pain? Or, you know, and you can run through four or five different ways without telling them what to do. And that may be very helpful because they may not be thinking of any of that. All they're thinking about is they're locked into this one anxiety-driven focus. They can't think about other alternatives. And just by very calmly telling them, well, here's five different ways to look at the problem. That may start a whole new conversation. And then after that conversation takes a turn, you can give them another five ways to look at that problem, you see. And now you're being part of their solution without telling them what to do about it. Don't tell them how to solve the problem, but you can help them see a bigger picture in which they have different opportunities for different choices that they just did. Otherwise, they weren't thinking about. They were locked into a, and that's the way it is with, with uh, people who are depressed. Mostly, they're locked into, a, into a, a worldview that seems to only be bleak. They don't see all the opportunity that's all around them as opportunity. None of that exists in their mind. And, and uh, if you just tell them, hey, your world's full of opportunities, stop being so sad, that's not helpful at all, you see. You just don't understand if you are telling them that. From their perspective, you just don't understand. So if you don't try to tell them what to do or what they should do or what they should be seeing, just talk in a way that gives them opportunities for choices. That's maybe as much as you'll be able to do. Perfect. Thank you very much, Tom. So basically, it again trickles down to acting out of intellect or being level, which I haven't realized in the past. And uh, I also realized that uh, maybe what I'm doing also is uh, I connect often and then I feel what the other person may be feeling. And maybe then I get a bit overwhelmed or scared and uh, connect to intellect to basically... Uh, protect myself from the hurt that uh, the other person may be feeling and right. then I contract uh, the the hurting feelings in me by telling them what they should do yes so that's the typical way it goes you know people get a, a an idea that they feel the person's pain and then they step back from that pain because they don't want to just be there 
And then their intellect kicks in and says, now, how can I fix this? Well, you see, you can't fix it. They have to fix it. And uh, that's then where the problem is. Once the intellect gets in charge, then uh, the empathy stops. And now you're seeing it from your perspective. And now you, you make up a plan of how you can help fix it, but it's all from your perspective. And that's not the optimal plan. So the best thing is, is just let the, let the empathy stay in contact. And, you know, grieve with the person or, you know, laugh with the person or cry with the person. Just kind of be with them. And uh, that may help them more than trying to fix it. Men get into a great deal of trouble trying to fix things for their female partners. And the female partner doesn't want them to fix it. They want just to be consoled. They want understanding. They want somebody to feel their pain and, and appreciate it or whatever. They don't want to be fixed. And we guys want to fix everything. That's what we do. We see a problem, we want to fix the problem. Right? The computer doesn't work, you fix it. You know, you, you don't you don't empathize with the computer's problem. You fix the computer's problem. Problems exist to be fixed. And that's the way we see the world. And we tend to do that with people. We want to fix them too. And the people are broken and the people don't see it right. And the people are having problems and they they need a reboot, you know, they need a set, and we want to go in and fix it. And we real you have to realize it just can't fix people. People have to fix themselves and all you can do is provide an optimal environment in which they can fix themselves. And sometimes it does require your interceding, but it never requires a heavy hand or telling them what the solution is. You can just help them find a solution, not tell them what it is. Yeah, we guys uh, uh, create a lot of mischief for ourselves and a lot of, get ourselves in a lot of trouble by trying to tell our ladies uh, how to fix their problem. And uh, what they do is they get real annoyed with us for, for that. So they have to learn that uh, that's true of really anybody. You know, it's the same with our children. You know, it's the same with, with our cohorts at work, you know, and the people we work with. We don't tell them how to fix their problem. People tend to get annoyed with you. But if you help them find a solution, not only do they learn something, but they grow from it because they found a solution. You go in and fix their problem for them. That's wonderful. If you're bringing them a computer that doesn't work, you want them to fix the problem, right? You're the tech specialist. Fix my problem, please. But if it's something about you and your personal life and something that's going on that's important, then nobody can fix that but you. And uh, you'll be very grateful for the help you get in fixing it, but not because they tell you what to do, but because they provide you the environment in which you can do it yourself. That's, the, that's kind of the key. So it's the attitude with which you... It's not never butt in or never uh, even tell them anything to do. You can, always, you can tell them all the cost of things. You know, there is no always do this, never do that. It's all situational, and it depends on your intent. If what you're trying to do is help them solve the problem themselves, well, do it. Don't worry about, is it the right thing? Am I doing this right? You can think about that. You know, I don't want to intrude. I don't want to be heavy-handed. But do it. You'll find out later how it works out. You know, were you really to help? Or did you get in the way? Learn from it. You'll know better next time. So don't be afraid to just do it. You have to learn. We learn by experience. And you can't sit on the outside figuring, well, I'll have to figure it all out first so I understand it before I ever do it because I wouldn't want to do it wrong. See, that is doing it wrong. Just get in there and do it. Learn from your experience. 
A lot of times people will want to sit on the outside until they feel that they have the right answer before they get in because they don't want to have the wrong answer. They don't want to hurt. And you can overdo that. Sometimes it's better. I guess you can underdo that too. You always know, jump into things without thinking, and that's not good either. But you can overdo that. You have to realize that you won't know all the answers. And a lot of times you won't know any of the answers. But you feel like you need to do something, so you just do what you can. Just be aware of your intent, that you're not trying to lead them to your solution. You're trying to help them find their own solution. And after that, just do what your intuition says and see how it works out and you'll learn from it as you go.